again, it's good to be with all of you today. I'm looking forward to this message. Uh, if you've been with us this year, you'll know that this entire year we focused our messages either on spiritual formation or spiritual gifts or spiritual conflict. And I recognize that a big part of our spiritual formation is actually our sexuality. So I want to start rolling out a series on sexuality and spirituality. This entire year I've been kind of thinking about this series and kind of moving towards closing the year by doing a series on sexuality and spirituality before we get to Christmas. And I thought it was a really good idea until I actually announced it and said, okay, this is my intention. Because once I announced it, my intention, I thought, oh boy, this is going to be a little trickier than I thought. Because as you know, when you start talking about sexuality, you bring up a lot of, uh, a lot of emotions. You bring up a lot of uh, different conflict. You a lot of people that have a different reaction when you talk about sexuality. In fact, probably the absolute hardest part about coming up with a series on sexuality is defining the word sexuality. Here, I'm doing a series on sexuality, and I can't even define the word. What's interesting is I have dozens and dozens of books on sexuality and spirituality, and I'm going through one after the other or the other, and nobody's defining the word sexuality. So if you Google sexuality, you're going to find a thousand and one different definitions of what does the word mean. So part of the series is I'm going to define to you what I believe is a good definition of the word sexuality. And actually, I have a lot of influence in this series. I'm going to share with you a few of the books that really influenced me. I'm going to do this because a lot of the series is on teaching. This is probably my number one go-to book on sexuality, especially broken sexuality. It's by Jay Stringer. It's called Unwanted. This book is by far, I think, the best book to talk about sexuality and broken sexuality from a Christian perspective. If any of you want to, you should read this book. If any of you want to discuss this book, I'd be happy to discuss it with you. This is one of those books you can read alone, but sometimes it's better to have a conversation about this book. I would love to talk about that book with you. My second book that's informing this series is Rich Velatus. I love Rich Velatus. So does Donna. That's how I know about Rich. He's a pastor in New York City, and this guy, he, he's, he's cool, and he gets it, and he's young, and he's just, anyway, I love Rich. A lot of his stuff is on spiritual formation. The final book that I really, oh man, The Deeply Formed Life. Anything by this guy is really good. But like, you'd probably be like, ah, that's where Jack got that idea. You'd be like, realize Jack's not that smart. Jack just reads well. And my third book that really influences me is this book by Kurt Thompson. I love Kurt Thompson. He has three books out. This book is called The Soul of Desire. Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. By far the best book by a Christian psychiatrist on just uh, psychology and Christianity. I love this man. He can take something extremely complicated and boil it down to something that I can understand. So these books have all had a big impact on these series and in my life, and so a lot of what I'm going to be doing is motivated by these books. So as I said, you know, this topic of sexuality is pretty controversial. It's hard to really define what sexuality is, so why am I doing this, this series? Number one reason I'm doing this series is because it's about people. This is a series about people that Jesus loves dearly. This is not a series on controversy. This is not a series on debate. This is a series about a gift that God has given to us, which is our sexuality. This is a series about discovering your identity, about discovering your creativity. It's about discovering 
the compassion that Jesus has to people who experience brokenness in their sexuality. Now, I need to make a big point, a significant point right away, that nobody is exempt from sexual brokenness. Every single person has experienced some brokenness within their sexuality. I'll explain that a whole lot later when I get into the message. And number two, my biggest conviction is that the conversation about sexuality needs to be normalized in the church. My biggest motivation for doing this series is that the topic of sexuality is so often ignored by the church. We need to normalize this discussion of sex and sexuality in the church. Sex and sexuality are a gift that God has given to each of us that need to be embraced and they need to be understood instead of run away from and ignored. So I want to talk about this topic so it's normalized in the church. Last weekend, I had the privilege of being the pastor on a men's weekend retreat called De Cloris, and that's where some of these new guys are from. And when I was on that retreat, I was saying to the guys that 30 years prior, I had made my weekend. I made my weekend when I'm in my early 20s, and I told them when I came on that weekend, I had no idea if I was gay or if I was straight or if I was some mishmash combination of the two. I had no idea about this big part of my life, the sexuality part of my life. But I was sure of three things. The first thing that I was positive of is that I was scared out of my mind. I had no idea what to do. And my fervent prayers didn't seem to be leading me into any direction of clarity. And the second thing that I knew is that I was desiring things and I was doing things that are not on the Bible's recommended to-do list. And it seemed to me that I had no power to stop any of that. And the third thing that I was confident of is that my 17 years of sitting in Christian education and my 23 years of sitting in church were giving me absolutely no comfort or security or direction. That's kind of a sad scenario that I could grow up in a church and grow up in this Christian school environment and I had this huge gap in my understanding of sexuality. See, this is the problem. So often the topic of sexuality is ignored in the church while at the same time it's the conversation that is so desperately needed to happen in the church. This series probably is not going to give you every answer that you're looking for, but hopefully what this series will do is it will give you a platform to feel comfortable talking about sex and sexuality. If any place is going to have the answers for sex, it needs to be in the church. Fortunately, after that first weekend, I told you I didn't know any, what my sexuality was. I met a friend that I could trust and have confidence in, and I sat with him one night, and I said, look, I have no idea what's going on inside of me. I don't know if I'm gay. I don't know if I'm straight. I don't know if I'm some mishmash. And fortunately, he looked at me, and he showed me compassion, and he showed me some kindness, and he said, I don't really exactly know either, but I know this. If you put Jesus first in your life, I think some things are going to start to sort themselves out. That's the focus of this message. Not putting sexuality first, but putting Jesus first and seeing how he's going to sort out everything else in our life. Now that night when I sat with my friend at the restaurant and told him that story, not everything was worked out that night. It did not solve all my issues, solve all my questions, but I knew that night that without a doubt that God had a plan of restoration. That God was going to do something about these questions that I was experiencing. And that's the confidence I want us to have as we talk about the subject, that we have confidence that God is involved in our lives. 
See, unfortunately, the church has kind of earned a reputation of being irrelevant when the conversation about sexuality arises. And honestly, I think they deserve that reputation. So often the church seems to be a rule, uh, an expert on the rules of sexuality, but they have no understanding of why. Or they have no understanding of the gift of sexuality. Or they have such a little understanding about what covenant is. I want that trend to change. I want us to be a community that can have discussions about sexuality in an open environment. Because there's a lot at stake, which is specifically the next generation. Now, as a community, we do not have to agree on everything. Uh, But the church needs to be a place where people can depend on being loved and cared for and shown deep respect, regardless of their theology or their belief in Jesus or their allegiance to Jesus. The church needs to be a safe place where people can feel comfortable talking about their stories and talking about their experiences. Now, believe me, theology is incredibly important. I love good theology. I will not compromise my beliefs. However, love and compassion are equally as important. I love this quote by Preston Sprinkle where he says, if we get our theology right, but our love wrong, we are wrong. We have to get our love right, and we have to get our theology right. So before I jump into what is sexuality, I want to make four quick little points to kind of set up this series and kind of talk about the context of this series. Number one, my first point is this. We are all in this discussion together. No one is exempt from this conversation. Every single one of us has a sexuality. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't know if this message is really relevant to me. I just really, um, things are going fine in my life. That's good. Maybe you are here to listen to this message for somebody else. Because each and every one of us, we are called to help other people discover the path of redemption that Christ has for them. And maybe this series will help inform you to know how to love other people. My second point is this, that God understands your situation and he desires to show every person compassion. Some of you could be in a very difficult position in your life right now. Some of you might be really struggling right now. I want to make sure that you feel and sense compassion here today because none of you are a problem that needs to be fixed and none of you are a person that needs to be ignored. Instead, every single person here and listening online is you need to experience the love and compassion of God. That is what I hope this series communicates because every single person is actually on a path to discover what does it mean to be a beloved son or daughter of God? Maybe some of you are really struggling when I'm even talking about this. You're like, I'd rather just run from this room or actually turn the computer monitor off. If that is your, if that's what you feel like right now, like you're just like anxious, I wish you would just shut up. Then I hope these words by Jay Stringer, again, my favorite book, will comfort you. He says, it is my conviction that the God of the universe is neither surprised by nor shamed of the sexual behavior we participate in. Instead, he understands it to be the very stage through which the work of redemption is played out in our lives. God's not shocked by anything. Instead, he wants to use it to draw you in a deeper relationship with him.
And that's my third point is this. This is a series about discovering the truth. It's not a series about debate. And my final point is this. This is not a series to try to keep other people out of the church, to set up barriers and say this is what we believe, but this is a a series to include more people in the church by being clear about our position of love as well as theology. And as well as this church, we are committed to using theology to love people, not using our theology as a weapon to hurt people. Now, last week I used this illustration of a debate club, and I'm going to use it again. Some of you in Dayclorus, you heard it, you're going to hear it again. As I say, sometime as a pastor, you find a good illustration, man, you're like, yeah, I got to use that every much as I can. But this is a good illustration because I think it really helps us to kind of frame what we're doing when we talk about sexuality. See, I didn't know much about a debate club until a couple of few weeks ago when I was reading this article on how debate clubs work in, in high school and college. As you know, debate clubs, you have one person, uh, one person or a team against one person in a team that they're going to talk about an issue or, or a topic, and then, you know, you debate back and forth, and at the end of the debate, the judge or the panel will decide who actually is vic- victorious. So I always thought the goal of a good debate was just to win. I always thought the mark of a good debater was a person who won the most debates. That was until I read an article from the Yale University Political Union. And in that article, they said the the goal or the mark of a good debater is not always the one who wins. The mark of a good debater is the person that's willing to admit defeat during the middle of a debate. They actually refer to that as being broken on the floor. That if a debater has enough character that in the middle of their debate they could say, ah, yeah, that other guy's winning, and admit that they lost, that's the mark of a good debater. Because the goal of a debate is not to win. It's to discover the truth. And sometimes the best way to discover the truth is to say, you know what, yeah, you got me. That's what I want our culture to be that we're seeking a truth. We're not seeking to debate or seeking to argue. We are seeking to find the truth. So my four points, number one, we're all in this together. Number two, God understands our situation and he wants to show us deep compassion. And number three, sexuality is a truth that needs to be sought. And finally, we're not trying to create an exclusive community, but we're trying to love people and to love them well with the truth. So now... I'm going to define the word sexuality. Like I said, it seems like it would be an easy word to describe because the word is used so frequently. However, it's hard to come up with a good definition because people, when you say the word sexuality, they automatically think you're talking about what happens in the bedroom. That's just a very, very small part of the word sexuality. It's part of the difference, but just a very small part. Earlier, I said when I looked for books, it was just so hard to find a solid definition. So I'm going to give you my definition, but first, I want you to understand that sexuality is a whole lot more than what happens in the bedroom. It's way beyond what we do with our genitals. It's way beyond that. Because you think about it, celibate people still have a sexuality. And second, our sexuality is made up of various different components, so each person's sexuality is unique. Each person will express their sexuality in different ways because it is influenced by many different factors that I'll explain. So in one short little sentence, let me tell you, give you my definition. 
Our sexuality is about our deep desire to connect with other people. That is your sexuality. The core of your sexuality is this deep longing and this deep desire to connect with other people. And it is not always what happens in the bedroom, but it's always about connecting with other people. It might be platonic or it might be romantic. So the essence of our sexuality really is how do we express our desire to know and to be known by other people? Are you surprised? That is the definition. Your sexuality is this deep longing in you that wants to connect with other people through romantic relationships or purely platonic, but each one of us has this longing to be to know and to be known by other people. Now, this is what makes our sexuality unique. Our sexuality is actually driven by or influenced by or fueled by many very different factors, including your gender, including your values, your belief system. It's going to include your previous relationships. It will include your orientation. It will include your feelings. It will include your past experiences. All these various inputs will inform how your sexuality is presented and how you use your sexuality. That's why we often experience so much brokenness in our sexuality, because our sexuality is driven by your previous experiences, it's driven by your race, by your gender, by your religious affiliation, by your orientation, and various other things that come into influence how we relate to other people. You think about it, all your past experiences really do inform how you relate and how you connect with other people. You had a crazy, tragic background. It will influence the way you connect with other people. You have a really healthy and a whole background. It's going to influence in a very positive way how you connect with other people. So now let me take this one step a little deeper. Deborah Hirsch in her book agrees that your sexuality is this deep longing to know and to be known by other people. That's your sexuality. Now your spirituality over here, over her definition, that's your deep longing to know and to be known by God. So you have spirituality, your desire to know God, and your sexuality is a desire to know other people. So when you consider that your sexuality is a deep longing to connect and to be known to by other people is influenced by a lot of different factors like your beliefs or your genders or your relationships, you can begin to see why everybody expresses themselves in various different ways. You think about it, a single woman is going to relate to other women in a different way that a married woman's going to relate to other women and to a man. You think about how a person that maybe grew up in a really strict culture is going to relate to people of the opposite sex different from people who grew up in a very different progressive culture. You think people that had a real bad experience dating, they're going to react to people of the opposite sex in a way that nobody else would probably experience. All of us are going to experience a different way of expressing our sexuality because of our past experiences. But what's in common for each people is a deep longing to know and connect with other people. See, a desire to connect with other people is fundamentally what it means to be a human being. See, that longing to connect with other people is actually is a result of being created in the image of God. To be created in the image of God is a desire to live in community. And that's what our sexuality is expressing. 
I like how Kirk Thompson says, he says, our sexuality, this is the most vulnerable, but it's also the most powerful part of our being that we take with us wherever we go. It's vulnerable and it's powerful. Some of you might be thinking, that's weird. I didn't express, think my sexuality had anything to do outside of the bedroom. But your sexuality is going to, you're going to use your sexuality, your sexuality in two ways, either social or in an intimate way. Another way of talking about your sexuality is that you could say that's your personhood or that's your identity. It's very important that we be, start this series by having a good working definition of the word sexuality because as Kirk Thompson says, you take it wherever you go. You can't turn it off or turn it on. It goes with you wherever you go, and it's how you express yourself to the world, and it's how you desire to know the world and be known by the world. But see, your sexuality gets really complicated really fast, and that's because we have an enemy that's working hard to distort our view of our own sexuality. Not only have we experienced brokenness, but listen to this quote by Jay Stringer. We need to consider the possibility that the evil one has been plotting against your sexuality throughout your entire life. That the evil one has probably been plotting against your sexuality your entire life. Satan has a goal, and his goal is to destroy God, but he can't do it. He's not powerful enough. He's not strategic enough. So Satan's going to go against what God values most, and that's people. That's you. That's me. That's women. That's men. That's girls. That's boys. Satan will go after who God loves the most. Because we're created in the image of God, Satan's goal is to destroy our representation of who Christ really is. In order to do that, he plots against your sexuality because your sexuality is how you relate to everybody else in the world. As John 10.10 says, the devil comes to steal and to kill and destroy. The enemy's goal is to hurt us. It's to get us wounded. Why? So he can influence our behaviors that will sabotage every relationship that we have spiritually or even with other people. Let me read you another quote by Jay Stringer. This is the good news. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called the beloved of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, that means God really loves you a lot. And as Jay Stringer says, the gospel tells us that our belovedness will never change according to our wanderings. But our belovedness is intended to change our wanderings. That's what God wants to do in your life. He wants to show you so much love and compassion that it changes every desire that you have. Because one of the enemy's key strategies to do for us is to change our desires, to distort our desires, to make us think that we have absolutely no value. Because if you believe that you have no value, it will influence how you have relationships with every other person in a way that's not going to actually be good for you. So because one of the enemy's biggest goals is to come against our desires, it's, important, it's very important that we understand our desires. That finally brings us to our text. Page 8 of my notes, and we're finally getting to my sermon. That's a big intro. 
John 1, verse 35, I'm just going to read 35 through 39. The following day, John was standing with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there's the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and he saw them following. He turned and said to them, What do you want? They replied, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to his place where he was staying, and they remained there the rest of the day. This is an interesting passage because this passage records the very first words of Jesus that we're going to hear. We've been waiting 30 years to hear what Jesus has to say, and what is Jesus' very first words? What do you want? That's a pretty significant opening phrase by Jesus, that his very first words are, what do you want? That's pretty beautiful. And it's pretty powerful when you consider that the book of Mark tells us that Jesus came to serve. He comes to serve, and what does he say to these potential followers? What do you want? That's a, that's a question of deep compassion. The kindness to look at someone and say, hey, what do you want? What can I do for you? But at the same time, that's also a pretty piercing question. That's a question that's going to actually make you think really, really hard and really deep. And in fact, these two gentlemen, who we believe is Andrew and John, they don't even answer. Jesus says to them, what do you want? And they're like, uh, where do you live? They didn't answer. Why didn't they answer? I don't have a really good reason. I've looked and I've looked and I've looked. This is a gospel according to Jack. I think when Jesus said to him, what do you want? They were so shocked and like, I have no idea what to say. And so what did they ask? Where do you live? I wonder if they are thinking, um, I'll think about it and then maybe I can come over to your house a little later today and tell you. That's what I actually think happened. That they were so taken back by Jesus' question, they said, maybe we could come over a little later and tell you our answer. Because see, in order to answer that question, what do you want, you're going to have to get kind of introspective. You're going to have to really consider, what do you really, really want from Jesus? See, the essence of what Jesus is saying that day is he's saying, what do you guys really desire? What's really in your heart? In other words, what would make you feel really satisfied? What would make you really feel complete? Or what would make you feel really whole? That's what they're hearing. Jesus is saying, what do you guys need that you feel like you're a whole human being? See, we need to pay attention to this question because I believe with all my heart that Jesus asks each of us that question every single day. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? Here's a quote by uh, James Smith of Calvin. He says, Our wants and our longings and desires are at the core of our identity. You could say at the core of our sexuality. The wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. See, every one of our actions in our life is going to flow from our desires. See, our desires are going to show what's in our heart. So when Jesus says, what do you want? He's saying to you, I want you to be really honest. 
Don't give me some sanitized version of what you want because you're trying to impress me. No, you tell me exactly what you really, really, truly want. See, the Bible tells us to guard your heart because everything that you do flows from it. That's Proverbs 4, verse 23. Every single thing is going to flow from your heart. So Jesus is saying, you tell me your desires because those desires are going to come out in your behavior. That's exactly what my problem was 30 years ago. I had these desires, and it was influencing my behavior. And Jesus is saying, you tell me what are these desires that you're having. I want to know these desires that you're experiencing. I think that's why James, I think that's why John and Andrew didn't answer Jesus quickly. I'm wondering if they had some desires. They're like, I don't know if it's safe to say those to you right now. I'm wondering if they're guarding themselves. Like, if I really told you some of these desires, I don't want to offend you. But see, if we're not able to name some of these desires that we have that are not good for us, they will lead us into places that we never intended to go. That's why Jesus says, what is your desire? And if some of you had good and godly whole desires, that's great. But see, sometimes you have to name your desire if you want to tame it. That's Jay Stringer as well. I didn't think I was that good to come up with that one. That's why Jesus says, what is your desire? Because see, Jesus, what he ultimately wants to do is he wants to meet every single need and every single desire that you have. He was asking them what they wanted. He was asking them what their desires was. Why? Because he wanted to meet those needs. Every single one of us has core needs. Every one of us has needs that need to be met every single day of our life. And those things aren't met, we're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. Dr. Dan Siegel, he's a, this expert child psychologist development man, and he wrote this book, The Power of Showing Up, and it's all on children's psychology. He says the most basic need of every child is to feel secure. He said the goal of parenting or the goal of, of, of helping young kids is to help a child grow up in an environment where they feel seen, where they feel soothed, and where they feel safe. The healthiest children are going to grow up in an environment where they feel like they're nurtured, where their parents see their needs, where their parents anticipate their needs, and their persons try to give them what their needs are. And also parents that can help a child know you can have that need met now or maybe that need met later. And when kids grow up in an environment where they are seen and they're safe and they're soothed and they feel secure, they will grow up having confidence. And when they have that confidence that was given to them at home, then they can go out and they can navigate the rest of the world, knowing that confidence that was put in them as a young child. Now, people, psychiatrists like Kirk Thompson and others, they've stepped forward and said, you know what? That's really good. That's really good children's psychology. But the truth is, those needs to feel seen and safe and soothed and secure, those don't go away when you get older. We have those needs our entire life. Every one of us needs to feel safe. Every one of us needs to feel secure. Every one of us needs to feel soothed. Every one of us needs to feel like we have a groupetto, that we have a community that we can go back to that will listen to us, that will show us love and show us compassion and listen to the desires that we have and listen to our hurts and frustrations. We have to have a community where we can be honest so we have that security, and from that place of security, we can go out and navigate the rest of the world. We all have these needs. And Jesus is standing before Andrew and John saying, I'll meet those for you. I'll meet those for you. 
Either I will meet those for you or I'll help you find those needs met in the people around you. That's why the Bible offers us so many invitations. That's why the Bible says, come find rest in Jesus. Why it says, come find protection with God. That's why it says, God will hide you and he'll shelter you because God wants to show to us that he's gonna meet every single need that we have. See, the truth is we are all called to steward our sexuality in a way that honors God and is true to the scriptures. But none of us can do that. None of us can manage all the inputs that go into our sexuality. None of us can do it. That's why God steps in and he says, I'll do that for you. I want to help you do that. That's why marriage is a covenant relationship. I'm going to talk about that next week. Marriage has to be in a covenant relationship. Two broken people cannot come together and create covenant. They cannot do it. It's impossible because of all these inputs into our life. So God comes in and says, you can have marriage and it will be a covenant. Because in that covenant, I will be involved in your relationship. That's why sex can only be done in the covenant of marriage because it needs to be protected. It needs to be safe and it needs to be secure because we come in with all this influence in our life. So I want to talk about covenant next week and the beauty of covenant relationships. But see, God wants us to steward our sexuality in a way that honors him and honors the scriptures. So God comes to each of us and says, what can I do for you so I can help you actually do that? Because he knows we could never do it on our part. Today I want us to take communion together. And we're going to take communion together, recognizing that communion is, could be referred to as the greatest exchange that ever happened in our life. You can refer to communion as the divine reversal in our life. Communion is a time for us to remember, it's a time for us to celebrate that our life was going one way until Jesus got involved and sent us in a different direction. Communion is a time where we go and we remember that Jesus exchanged our guilt, our shame, our condemnation for his righteousness and his purity. We don't come to the communion table with, this, the, the, with our righteousness and exchange it for more righteousness. No, we come with our sin and our brokenness. That's why we go to the communion table. We come to the communion table with our desires. We come with our good and our godly desires that say, God, I want to be closer to you. I want to be more like your son. I want to be more of a forgiving person. We come with these desires and we say, God, would you help us with that? But we also come to the communion table with our broken desires. We come with our brokenness and say, God, I'll I'll be honest with you. These are some things I want to do and I know they're not right at all, but I'm going to come and I'm going to give that desire to you. Because you can't deal with your broken desires on your own. If you hold your own broken desires, they're going to continue to grow. But Jesus says, you give your broken desires to me and this is what I'm going to do. I will hold it. And I'll take the life out of it. But what Jesus always does is he exchanges whatever we give to him and he redeems it so he can bring a resurrection to our life. That's what God does at the communion table. It's a reminder that we give to him the brokenness in our life. We give him the sin in our life. And he holds it for us and he redeems it. Every one of us have desires that have gone wrong and every one of us has very good desires. 
But the communion table is this constant, this consistent reminder in the church that you give to God the things that you don't like about yourself. And you watch and bring resurrection to those things. Because every single desire that you have has another desire behind it, and that is you're reaching out for to be know God and to be known by God. God wants to redeem our desires so we can actually find the connection with him that we desire or find the connection that we want with other people. God calls us to the communion table because he wants to redeem our desires and he wants to renew all things in our life. So I want us to take this today remembering that the body of Jesus was broken for us it was broken for us that Jesus experienced every single temptation that you and I have experienced. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He was tempted with desires that we've experienced, so he understands. There's nothing shocking to Jesus. There's nothing shocking to God. So we can take this with the confidence that our brokenness can be made whole by him. And next, we peel back the layer to get to the little juice. Remembering it was the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. That Jesus died for us. So let me pray and have Greg and the team lead us. God, I thank you that you are a God of the broken. I thank you, God, that you are the God of restoration and hope and healing and kindness and compassion. We thank you that you are a God of divine reversals. God, I thank you that you can take brokenness and you can resurrect it into life, into healing, into wholeness. So, God, I come to you today and we ask, Lord, that you would bring wholeness to each of our lives, that you would help us to be agents of reconciliation for you, that you would use us in a way to bring glory to your name. I pray, God, that you bring wholeness in all areas of our lives. And, Lord, I pray, Lord, even as we go out from this church or we leave our homes today, that we would be used to be a reflection of who Christ is to the rest of the world. God, I pray that you'd bring renewal in our sexuality, that you'd bring renewal in our desires, and that you'd bring healing and wholeness to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.